Hello and welcome to another Pyro seminar. This must be like number eight or nine now. Um, and what I want to do actually in the next coming months is, um, you know, set up a number in advance so that we kind of know what's going to be happening. But tonight, what I wanted to do is look a little bit at the politics of pyrotheology and see if it has anything to say to kind of contemporary outbursts of violence um, and if it has any kind of framework, a useful framework to understand what's going on. So to start with, I'm going to um, try to unpack what I think Christianity at its core is. Uh, now, the way I describe that at the moment, and hey, you know, I think I'm right now, but in a year's time, I'll say something different. Maybe even next week, I'll say something different. But what I've been working with recently is the idea that Christianity, um, in a nutshell, can be described as the subtraction of our libidinal investment in the lost object. The subtraction of our libidinal interest in the lost object. Now I'm going to unpack what I think that means um, and uh, we're going to start by looking a little bit at kind of ideology, politics and economics and then kind of move from there. So what I want to do is start with um, kind of our Western economic ideology which of course can be called capitalism and like capitalism has undergone a number of critiques, both from those who are outside of capitalism, who are coming from a Marxist or a, a communist or an anarchist perspective, but also, of course, from people within capitalism, uh, those people who uh, you know, may think that the ideology can work, but, but needs, um, needs critique and needs development. So the most radical critiques of capitalism in the West um, began the first wave uh, let's, call it, let's call them waves. The first wave uh, was uh, inequality. The, the critique was that our contemporary economic and political system generates inequalities and unfair inequalities. Uh, people with money can make more money. People without uh, stay at the bottom of the pile. So, you know, that's very simple. We still know that critique today. But Around the Second World War and just after the Second World War, um, intellectuals uh, in Europe began to critique the, this dominant Western ideology, uh, not so much in terms of inequality, although that was part of it, but in terms of repression. So what you got was really insightful analysis of how our society creates one-dimensional individuals. People who become like a cog in the system. So if you look at the great literature from the kind of mid 20th century onwards, there's a lot of that literature which is exploring either how bureaucracy grinds people down, how industries make us into just part of a huge machine, and how we become, in a sense, detached from our wider desires and interests. So even like films like... Um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I think, goes into it, but, you know, it creates this vision of a world which, which runs without a soul, uh, without that which makes us human. So the first wave of critique, you know, looked at primarily inequalities. Uh, the second wave, you could say, looked at repression and looked at how 
contemporary ideology, contemporary economics can reduce us all to um, kind of economic players and reduce us all to small parts in a massive system, in a massive machine that um, takes away our individuality and um, takes away our humanity. And then the third wave, which I think is just beginning to uh, take shape, is the critique that actually our system runs on this obsessive connection with what we can call a lost object. Now, to understand what this lost object is, uh, we start with, um, you know, some, you know, imagine someone who is a hypochondriac and who has this sense of dis-ease in themselves. So they have these feelings, they have these fears, and they attach those feelings and those fears onto a belief that they have cancer. So this particular hypochondriac thinks that they, they have some sort of cancer. And then they imagine that things would be so much better if they didn't have the cancer. So on the other side of the cancer might be you know, good relationships with their family, uh, a job. It might be uh, you know, just a peaceful life. Uh, so what you have psychologically is a person who is imagining something wonderful that um, is impossible to get because of some, uh, an obstacle the obstacle being cancer. And that obstacle is causing disease and, and a feeling of dissatisfaction and fear and anxiety in their life. But from a psychoanalytic perspective, something more interesting is, is taking place. Uh, what you could say is that the hypochondriac here uh, has this trauma, the trauma of life itself, and maybe particular contingent traumas as well that have happened to them. And what they've done is they've placed all of that angst and anxiety and fear into an object, cancer. So they can say it's the cancer that causes all of these feelings, but it's not the cancer that causes the feelings. It's actually the cancer that allows the hypochondriac to stay on top of their feelings to not drown in their trauma, to not be overcome by their anxiety. And this obstacle, this thing, the cancer, which they think is the, is the cause of their disease, but is actually that which um, allows them to distance themselves from their disease, creates the illusion that there is something just past the cancer that would be wonderful and amazing and incredible, that would make their life one of peace and tranquility. Now, the cancer can be seen as a type of scapegoat. It's uh, something that is imagined as getting in the way of some sort of perfection, but it actually creates the illusion that there is some sort of perfection. Now, the difference between a hypochondriac who thinks they have cancer, right? And then let's imagine that this hypochondriac actually finds out that they do have cancer. They're still a hypochondriac. Uh, if you, I don't know if you know the phrase, just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Which means, uh, this is a Lacanian idea actually, that you, you, you're still paranoid. You know, if you're paranoid that the FBI are looking for you, and it turns out that they actually are, 
you're paranoid, but you just have empirical evidence that can kind of cover it over, make it look like you're normal. So the difference between a hypochondriac who has cancer and somebody else who has cancer is the person who's not a hypochondriac, they don't need the cancer. Now, it sounds weird, but the hypochondriac needs the cancer. They need the idea of the cancer. Whereas somebody else who finds out they have the disease, they don't need it. And because they don't need it, uh, they can you know, probably be more effective at you know, fighting it. So even if the hypochondriac fights the cancer and gets over it, they will likely be fearful of its return or think that it's not really gone. Because whereas in the normal person, it's contingent, they just happen to have cancer, the hypochondriac, in a sense, requires it. They need it. Now, this is interesting because it can help us understand the difference between psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Uh, and by the way, these are interconnected, and there are lots of psychotherapists who are also psychoanalysts, um, and you know, people who use both techniques. But broadly speaking, uh, psychotherapy uh, you know, has this idea that you know, people want to get better, right? Uh, just like if you break your arm, uh, you know, your body will naturally heal if it's given the right environment, because that's what it wants to do. The bones naturally want to you know, re rejoin. As long as you've got a cast, you know, it will happen. In the same way, someone's got a problem in their relationship or they've got a problem in their job. And so they go to a psychotherapist and the psychotherapist listens. They help them work through their feelings and maybe even gives them advice about what they should do in order to you know, improve their life and get back on their feet. The difference between that and psychoanalysis sounds kind of weird at first because psychoanalysis works on the premise that, that, that at key moments, we don't want to get better, that actually at our core, we don't want to get well, and that there are resistances every step of the way whenever we are looking to find a cure, to get over misery, to get over melancholy, to get over obsessive compulsions and repet repetitions of, of bad actions. Now, to understand what that means, and Freud called this the death drive, that in some senses, we fight against the healing process. And so in, in psychoanalysis, it's always about trying to unearth these resistances uh, to try to make sure that they don't halt the, the healing process. Now, Lacan, the psychoanalyst, he explored this in depth. And you know, one, of the, one of the ways to understand why we do want to get better is because, you know, take this hypochondriac as an example. To get better means to lose the scapegoat, which means losing also the sacred object, the lost object, the thing that you think will, will make everything great, and actually confront the crises and the traumas and the difficulties of your life. And that can be so terrifying that we would prefer to remain in the thrall of the illusion that there is some thing out there that will fix it all. So in psychoanalytic terms, uh, take the example of a gambler. 
people think that gamblers are addicted to winning, but often gamblers are actually addicted to losing because in losing, the idea that there is a win that would just make everything fine, that would just fix everything, remains. You know, if a gambler kept winning the slot machines, well, then they would kind of discover that actually winning has no real power. But as long as they keep losing, as they lose, they retain the fantasy of something that will fix them. And that fantasy can help prevent us from looking at the traumas and the pains and the difficulties in the gambler's life. Um, there's an example of a friend of mine who was in psychoanalysis and he was telling the psychoanalyst about a relationship that he was in and he, he said it was a, like a heroin relationship, up and down, like real highs and lows. And, uh, you know, it was incredible when they were together, but it was an impossible relationship. And, and you know, he just said, I, I'm addicted to the highs. I'm just addicted to the highs of this relationship. And the analyst who you know, would rarely say anything, just said, what if you're addicted to the lose? Now, when she said that, uh, my friend had a realization that actually by never having a real relationship with this woman, it was, he was able to maintain a fantasy that if he was with her, everything would be wonderful, everything would be great. So even though he was suffering from not having this relationship, the suffering allowed him a fantasy of wholeness just over the horizon. And that prevented him from having to look at the difficulties in his life. Um, so yeah, I mentioned the hypochondriac, uh, the gambler, um, I've just mentioned, uh, you know, the heroin relationship. Uh, one other example, uh, another true example is uh, there's a comedian I know who was going to a therapist, and you know he just got married, and he wasn't he he was he was anxious about it. He wasn't happy. He felt uh, dissatisfied in the relationship, and he was thinking about adultery. And the analyst said to him because he felt guilty about this. The analyst said. Uh, don't take adultery off the table. Now, at first, this seems counterintuitive. But what the, what the analyst is saying is, well, you know, you're dissatisfied and you have these, this suffering in your life. And then you create a scapegoat, which is your wife. You know, oh, if only my wife wasn't there, you know, I could have another relationship. Maybe it would be so much better. It would be great. It would be fantastic. And with that scapegoat, you now then have a fantasy of a lost object, something that would be incredible and amazing and would fix everything. And he said, so this, the analyst said, so if you, if you get rid of the adultery, like if you put it off the table, you just make it more powerful because you make the impossibility, you make the scapegoat even bigger. Oh, I can't have an affair, which makes the scapegoat even more impossible. I can't have an affair because of her, because you know it would hurt everybody, and so I can't do it. And the strength of that I can't have, I can't do it, will, will just feed the idea that there is something beyond that prohibition, which is fantastic. So this, lo this lost object will be invested libidinally with even more power than before. 
So by keeping adultery on the table, it's he's saying, well, look at it. Why do you want to? Why do you want to have adultery? Why do you want to commit it? What, let's let's talk it through. Let's see what that is hiding. Let's look at the scapegoat and see what that's telling you about yourself. Let's start to look at the struggles that you're hiding from. So in a, in a stereotypical fascist uh, kind of right-wing group, you have um, you know, the figure of the Jew, the Jewish community. They're the problem. So they're the scapegoat. So what you have is a community that's feeling a crisis. There is a problem. And that experience is then put onto the Jewish community. They are the problem. So it's concretized. Just like someone who's uh, phobic about mice, they have a general anxiety and then they concretize it into some object, spiders or mice or whatever it is. So the fascist community have this sense of disease and, 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 and trauma. They scapegoat it, put it onto the Jewish community. And then they fantasize a lost object on the other side of that. If we only got rid of the Jewish community, then everything would be better. We would return to the land. We'd get rid of like abstraction. We would have control back of the banks and the media and the education system that have been stolen from us. All of these kind of ideas. But actually, the fascist needs the Jewish community as much as the hypochondriac needs their cancer. Because if you got rid of the Jewish community, all you'd discover is that there is no lost object. And actually the crisis that you thought was the fault of the other is inherent to yourself. So that's a kind of a, um, a brief look at what the lost object is. Now it's called the lost object because it doesn't exist. It's not lost as in it was something that was there that's now gone. It's kind of was forever lost. It was forever gone. We experience it as lost. We experience it as something that we don't have. But actually, the loss is ontological. The loss is absolute. So there's only two ways that you can position yourself with regards to this lost object. Uh, the first can be called, in psychoanalytic terms, fear of castration. And the second, castration. So fear of castration first. What that means is, that you fear that something is being taken away from you. Something vital, you know, if it's a political group, something is, some rights are being taken away, something that, some value, some, you know, some money, jobs, whatever it is, something is being taken away from you. And if you had that, everything would be great. Now, fear of castration makes it sound like you have the object and you're afraid of losing it, but it's a little bit more complicated. To understand it, um, just think about a child with a toy. If you take a toy away from a child, the child might not care, uh, or the child might be a bit pissed off, right? Those are both reasonable responses. But a child might also kind of lose the plot. They might um, start to cry, start to act out, start to go crazy. And what this shows is that as you take the toy away from them, this toy becomes invested with all sorts of value that the toy doesn't really have. The toy takes on a symbolic value for the child as the lost object. It feels like the, child, something like the child's arm is being taken off. So that's what fear of castration is. It's something mundane and normal, uh, maybe something important and good, but something 
in the world of the mundane is taken away. And as it's taken away, it becomes over-invested with, with value. And in that over-investing in, in of value, the scapegoat is created and you know, we avoid a confrontation with our disease. And then castration is the feeling that we never had it. It's like that, you know, like where you don't take a toy away from a child, but you say to a child, see that toy over there, you'll, you're never going to get it. You're not allowed that. So the child's never had it, but, but being told it can't have it, can say the child might just go, yeah, fair enough. Or the child might be a little bit annoyed, which is fair enough. But if the child goes crazy, then the child is showing that they are libidinally invested in this fantasy of the lost object that can never satisfy because you're either unhappy because you don't have it or you get it and you're melancholy because you've got it but you don't desire it anymore. Stuff that we've covered in, in, in other talks. So when we look at uh, you know, contemporary political movements, um, we can see that often when there is a sense of disease in a community and a crisis begins to arise, scapegoats are created and beyond the scapegoats are postulated worlds that are without um, the disease, without the struggle, without the pain. Now, what has all this got to do with you know, Christianity? Um, uh, to get there, I'll just refer back to actually some of the previous Pyro seminars we've looked at. I think it was in the first and maybe second seminar, I talked a little bit about the Oedipus complex, where you know this, this boy wants to have sex with his mother and his father gets in the way and he kills his father, which means he gets rid of the prohibition. He sleeps with his mother. He thinks this is going to be wonderful and it's not, it's a disaster. And when I've expressed that before, I've talked about how the son represents us. Uh, the mother represents the lost object, something we can return to that will be perfect and wonderful and great. And the father represents the, the scapegoat, the thing that gets in the way that stops us from getting what we want. And in this story, then, we see that while we think that if we just get rid of the scapegoat, we destroy the enemy that is stopping us from getting what we want, then everything will be great. This story says, no, the enemy, the scapegoat, and what you want are intimately connected. There's a way that they, you know, that are connected. And if, so if you get rid of the prohibition and you get the thing that you want, you'll just realize that it isn't what you want. And this will be a very traumatic experience. Something that's so traumatic we want to protect ourselves from. Hence, as I said, the gambler who's addicted to losing because at least it allows them to keep the fantasy alive that there is something worth winning. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, although that's painful, it's less painful than losing that idea and having just to face the difficulties of life without that fantasy. Um, now, in those first seminars, I said that the story of Adam and Eve has this structure. You know, Adam and Eve are walking around a garden and then they have this prohibition. You cannot eat of this fruit. And then they have this idea that, oh, if only I could eat the fruits. They hear the voice of the serpent saying, you will be whole and complete. In other words, it's the lost object. It will make you like God. 
You know, you will be like God, says the serpent. You know, you will not lack anything. You will know all things. Uh, and so what they do is they break the prohibition. They eat the fruit thinking it's going to be great and it's a disaster. Um, so what is, what is the alternative? Well, in Christianity, there's an interesting move. And this, this is why I think Christianity can be described as this subtraction of our libidinal investment of our desire in this lost object is the whole the whole notion here is that um, there is something that we want there's something that gets in the way and we think that if only we could get rid of the thing that gets in the way we'll get to the thing we want uh, the terms for that are the object of desire which is what you want and the object cause of desire which is the thing that gets in the way, but it actually, in getting in the way, generates the desire for it, continues to keep it alive and well. Now, in Christianity, in the crucifixion, you have this notion that God is the object of desire. So God is the object of desire within the New Testament. And the object cause of desire is Christ. You know, the whole idea of the crucifixion is people want to kill Christ, get rid of the object cause, the thing that's in the way, the scapegoat, get rid of Christ to get back to God. And the central insight of the crucifixion is that the, the obstacle is God. The object cause is the object. So the very thing that you think you have to get rid of to get back to God is God. And this is brought home in the uh, conversion story of Paul, you know, where you know, Saul at the time is persecuting this group called the Christians. Now, it doesn't matter that they were Christians. It's, it's like, you know, it doesn't matter that the Samaritans were Samaritans. What mattered is the role the Samaritans played in some of the stories in the Gospels. In the same way, it just so happens there's this little group of people who are the scapegoat. They're the problem. Paul thinks that if we get rid of them, We'll get back to Judaism. We'll get back to the pure religion. Everything will be wonderful. And then he has the insight. He hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Which means he sees that the absolute is in the obstacle. The thing that he thinks you have to get rid of to get back to the absolute is the absolute. And this is the insight that, you know, the very scapegoats that we create the enemies that we need um, are actually uh, protections. Um, they're, they're actually the very thing that we need to protect us from seeing our own suffering and keep alive this notion that there's an object of desire. So in Christianity, these two things unite. And this is symbolized in the tearing of the curtain, the prohibition, the scapegoat, the tears, and then you see there's nothing behind the curtain. You know, as the, the soon as that one disappears, the other disappears. So this means in, in conversion, the central experience is realizing that the thing you think you have to get over in order to get what's needed um, is actually what generates that fantasy. These are two things that are intertwined. And in that moment, you lose your investment in the lost object. I think in a previous seminar, I talked about my own conversion where when I was 17, um, I came home after this kind of religious experience. Now, it wasn't an experience uh, it, it, of something. It was that which changes your experience of everything. If you want an experience of something, you, know, you take drugs and you'll get a better spiritual experience. 
that a real true religious experience transforms how you interact with everything. And the way that played itself out was I got rid of my possessions. I told my parents I wasn't part of their family and I stopped going to tech where I was doing computer studies. Now, all of those were very bad expressions of my feeling that I'd been subtracted from the political and economic and religious world that I grew up in. When I got rid of my stuff, it wasn't some big St. Francis of Assisi move. It was just because these things were aspirational. They would tell you what I valued, and I just no longer valued them. I just didn't care anymore. I just got rid of them because I didn't value those things. And when I said to my parents, I'm not part of your family, you know, that was my terrible way because I, I didn't have any education, didn't have any way to express what had happened. That was my way of saying all of the ways you brought me up, good as many of them were, I just feel like I've been subtracted from that. They don't have a pull on me anymore. And then, you know, where I was doing computer studies, uh, that was just something I fell into. I have to get a job. I have to settle down. I have to do this, that, or the other thing. And again, I just felt subtracted from that world that seemingly dictated how I should think and how I should be in the world. So my conversion, nothing was added, but uh, something was subtracted from me. And what was subtracted from me was this frenetic pursuit of something that will fix everything, something that will give me my place, that will take away my anxiety and my suffering. And so in my conversion, I had to face all of that. But in facing all of that, and there was a point where I broke down, but as I broke down, facing all of that stuff, this, that all lost its power. That actually facing one's own inner suffering and trauma robs it of its sting, begins to dissipate it. Now, I'm saying all of this because I'm saying that political activity that is connected to a lost object requires an enemy. So it will never work. Uh, you, it's like whenever you see people who have to read only stuff that really backs up um, what they believe that creates an enemy. Now, I say the difference is there are enemies out there. There are things to fight. There are people who, who you know, need to be opposed. But the difference is if you require an enemy, then in a sense, you will always protest and fight against something that, that unconsciously you want to keep. So even if you beat that enemy, you will just find a new enemy or you'll expand it. So during, the, uh, you know, it's, it's during Stalin's time, the kulaks were blamed for a lot of the dis-ease and the crises that were happening in Russia. And they were persecuted and they were executed. But as they got rid of the kulaks, what simply happened was people began to realize that actually the crisis wasn't because of the kulaks. The crisis was in the system itself. And so what they had to do is they had to expand the definition of what a kulak was because they required the enemy. So the kulak wasn't somebody who was very wealthy, owned fields, employed people, had the means of production. But, you know, a kulak was maybe someone who just had some modest means and maybe, you know, kind of had a couple of people working for them. And then eventually a kulak was somebody who thought like a kulak. So a kulak was somebody you didn't even have to have property and money and people working for you. Just if you wanted that, 
you you had the mind of a kulak and they had to be persecuted and it got so crazy that you know it got to a point where you know you didn't even have to think like a kulak you just have to be the type of person who would think like a kulak if you had the opportunity to in other words the enemy was required in order to prevent uh, the society from seeing its own problems and crises and work through them concretely and so the enemy can never be defeated the enemy must be you know made more into a scapegoat made more one-dimensional made more evil made more terrible um, so as to keep alive the idea that beyond that scapegoat is something wonderful and beautiful and great now that's the difference between between saying well no there are things to fight for and there are things that are concretely better and they're concretely worse in that example you don't need the thing that you're fighting against so you're not libidinally invested in it you're not invested in the very thing you protest against I, i'll just give you one example uh, there's somebody i met uh, a while back in this bar and uh, he was telling me that he used to want to be a writer and a public speaker but that he finally gave all of that up didn't care anymore went and got another job got married settled down um, now that's totally fine but he went on to tell me this maybe seven or eight times in the space of about half an hour, right? He was so angry almost at, at writers and speakers. And so he, he had this protest against it, but it was such a strong protest against that actually it betrayed that secretly he really wanted those things, but for whatever reason, couldn't have them. So, you know, for him, the first step might be to actually go, well, no, I, I think I still do want those things. And then he can decide, well, you know, I still, you know, everybody has to make compromises in life. So either, you know, I compromise and I start to write or I compromise and go, well, I don't really want it that much. But the first thing is to acknowledge your libidinal investment. Now, for him, he, you know, he consciously thought that he completely didn't like that stuff anymore. It was completely behind him. But actually, it was just something that he felt was not accessible to him. You know, people may attack wealthy individuals and say, oh, look at those people with all their money and all their stuff, and it's terrible. But sometimes, actually, what you're saying is, I just wish I was them. You know, if you had the opportunity to have that, you know, you, you would want to swap places. Now, th this can be called the insider-outsider problem, right? The insider-outsider problem is when you don't get what the ideology promises you, but you still believe the ideology. So you still want it. You just don't have it. So when you fight against something, you're either fighting against it because you're jealous or because you want to take over and be in power. Um, but ultimately, although you don't have what the system wants to offer you, you still believe that this, what the system offers is good. Um, now, this is different from in the past. Uh, Hegel once talked about the master and slave dialectic, where he said the master is the one who, you know, controls and has, uh, has everything, and the slave is completely separated from everything. But the slave is so separated from the master discourse from this world that they don't even want it. Right? You're so excluded from it that you're not, you don't even find investment because you see the worst of it. You're the one who 
is forced to be on your knees. And so you see what's on the ground and you see the terrible, violent nature of the system. So much so that it sickens you to your gut and you don't want anything to do with it. So you're libidinally disinvested from the master discourse and you find new ways of being, new ways of being in community, new ways of doing life together. Now, sadly, at this point, what Hegel's talking about is a time when you had to do that because you were so oppressed by the system. Um, but, you know, there are other ways of, of libidinally disinvesting from the dominant ideology. You know, it doesn't always have to be that way. But the problem today, someone like Todd McGowan would say, is that today the master discourse has kind of brought the slave discourse within it. So now you can be poor and downtrodden, but you're still fed the ideology that actually you should want what the system offers and you're just contingently damaged by it. But hey, you know, if you work hard enough, then you can have everything. Um, and so, you know, you're doubly oppressed. You're oppressed because you're, you know, you don't get what the system offers. And you're also doubly oppressed because you still are caught in the desire for what the system offers. Whereas Christianity, for me, seems to be the experience of psychic dis, um, disinvestment in that whole way of thinking, which is called forgiveness of sin. You know, sin is separation, is lack. And what I've been talking about when I talk about this sense of a disease within people, I'm talking about a lack, an angst, a lack. And what we do is we try to fill that lack. So, we, so you know, I, examples I've used before, but debt is a lack, right? And when you pay a debt, you fill the debt with money. So we try to, we try to fill this lack. And we, when we can't do it, we have a scapegoat that we blame because we can't fill it. But in forgiveness of sin, it is the experience, not of, of filling that lack, but when you forgive a debt, you say the nothingness that is something, because a debt is nothingness that ties you to institutions you despise and you know, jobs you hate that give you heart disease. It says that that nothingness that is something, that, that lack that you feel you have to fill with money, when you forgive a debt, you say the nothingness is nothing. You don't get rid of the lack, you just say the lack has no sting. And then you're freed. So in the same way, forgiveness of sin means the disinvestment of your libidinal desire from the political, religious, and economic systems that postulate some lost object that will satisfy us and therefore create some scapegoat, some enemy who is getting in the way of that. In the crucifixion, this is seen because the object of desire and the object cause of desire come together in one. This is called the death of God. And so you lose the idea that God is some sacred object and God becomes a depth dimension in objects. God is a depth dimension that we experience in facing our suffering rather than putting our suffering onto a scapegoat and thinking about some lost object that is beyond that scapegoat. So you take something like, you know, a right wing fascist group. Uh, you can see that often a fear of castration that they fear that something is being taken away from them that has made it over, overly invested and then they've created a scapegoat, usually the Jewish community. 
um, you know, who, are, who control the media, who control the financial institutions, who control the educational systems, who are the people in power. So the Jewish community are the, you know, these privileged people who need to be taken out. And that, you know, that system you can see playing out. Um, in, in this Christian experience, and forgiveness of sin would be a community like that, somehow, we have to worry about how it happens, but realizing that this scapegoat and this lost object isn't true, and that they have to face their own struggles and brokenness um, and not place it onto someone else. Um, oh, and you'll, you'll notice, by the way, that a lot of kind of right-wing groups are fetishistically attached to lost uh, causes, you know, the Nazi flag, the Confederate flag, these are all symbols of loss. And so you can see this, this, you know, like just like the gambler who's actually addicted to losing, not winning. You see it very concretely. These groups are exhibiting, although they talk about wanting to get rid of the, the Jewish community in order to, you know, get to this promised land. Um, you see actually this attachment to loss, this attachment to failure. Hence, to be honest, you know, the persecution of these groups, the attack on these groups feeds them even more. It feeds it and feeds it because it just creates even more of a scapegoat and even more of a fantasy of something that's beyond it. So in this way, parotheology is about creating communities in which the, the, all the people in the community forge a micro-society of resistance that is marked by the subtraction of libidinal interest in this entire way of being in the world. And as we do that, now if you do that as an individual, it's great. You know, it's a really nice way to live. <laughs> and if you do it as a community, it's wonderful. It's a, it's a way to really... Um, experience a depth of life and to be more effective in your communities and more effective with the people around you. But also, if there's enough people doing this in a town, in a, in a city, this can spread. This, this type of um, disinvestment from this frenetic pursuit uh, of this thing that actually ultimately destroys us, the, of paying the debt, of filling the lack, as we are freed from that, as we experience forgiveness of sin, which is, you know, not having to fill that lack of just robbing it of its sting, um, this can have very powerful and important um, political results. Just to take two examples, I think Rosa Parks and Mother Teresa are two examples of people who weren't invested in oppressive economic, political, and religious systems. For Rosa Parks, she just sat in a place where she wasn't supposed to sit because she did not give that system any heed. She wasn't plugged into it. She was in the world, but not of it. Or Mother Teresa, who gave no heed to um, the, uh, sorry, it's getting very dark in here. Let me just turn on the light. Um, <laughs> that's a little bit better. Um, Mother Teresa, who didn't give any heed to the caste system. She just didn't give it any libidinal energy. She didn't fight it. She didn't support it. She just ignored it. You know, if you think about something like keeping up with the Kardashians, keeping up with the Kardashians is watched by two types of people, basically, right? People who naively watch it because they like the people in the show and aspire to be like them. 
and then the enlightened viewer who watches it ironically, um, laughing at people who watch it in a naive way. Now, the interesting thing is both of these viewers keep the, the TV show running because the TV show doesn't matter whether you're libidinally invested through love or libidinally invested through hate. It's simply that you are a battery, a libidinal battery plugged into the system. And by watching it, you're feeding it because then the advertisers put on adverts and all of that. And in fact, you can imagine a show like the Kardashians where there's actually nobody who's watching it naively or pretty much nobody. But the liberals have to have the belief that there is some naive idiot watching it in order to get the pleasure of watching it. So they require this scapegoat. They require this, and they might not exist. I mean, of course, they probably do, but you could imagine a show that where everybody is an enlightened viewer and, and we just make up the idea that there is some idiot who watches this. I mean, a lot of these shows are actually constructed in that way. They're constructed to be so bad that people take the pleasure of watching them and imagining, you know, the naive viewer. But the, the way to stop the show is to just remove your investment in it, to just no longer care. Now, as an individual, that doesn't do very much, although it just helps you. <laughs> but, if, but if enough people do that, then, then the show dissipates. So first and foremost, Christianity, I think Christianity's radical move is freedom from the lost object. And then we're able to do real political action, real political protest, and engage in real political change because we're not invested in failure. We're not invested in necessarily not getting what we want because uh, we're freed from that scapegoat mechanism. And therefore, we can actually work to make the world a better place. Okay, I've said an awful lot there. I'm now going to look at your Q&A and see if uh, you have any questions or thoughts or comments. Uh, <laughs> you're getting very dark and you turn the light on. Yeah, sorry, I just noticed that <laughs> a little bit too late. Um, so Matt says, Regarding how to disrupt the scapegoating of fascist groups, I'll be attending a counter protest to a white supremacist rally in my community in a few weeks. What do you think about the idea of trying to break up the combative dynamic that often comes with that type of event by using the opportunity to invite people into common work, local food banks or soup kitchens, for example? Matt, that sounds amazing. Actually, yeah, I, see, it's difficult because we, I mean, we, because I, like, I, you know, I protested, say, the Iraq war. There's a good example. So I was protesting the Iraq war. But one of the things I wanted to kind of make sure that I was doing in my community at the time was that we, in a sense, were not invested uh, in, in failure. You know, for example, you know, where you're protesting something, but actually you really want the cheap oil. You just want to feel good that you don't have it. <laughs> or, you know, you feel good because you're protesting, but, you know, the war does something good for you. But it's, it's more complicated than that. It's that you kind of, you protest, um, but somehow you, you scapegoat. Somehow you've created a, a libidinal scapegoat and a, and, a, and a lost object. And so although you're protesting, you actually weirdly are getting more out of the protest 
than than out of really trying to make a difference. Now, I'm not saying that about anybody else but myself. You can't ask that. I can't ask that of anybody but myself and my closest friends. But I think what you're saying is you're doing exactly that. You're asking yourself, right, instead of potentially getting pleasure out of, um, you know, a protest, I mean, and that's totally fine to get, you know, what, you know whatever, but, but what, what does it mean to protest in an effective way that you, where you actually see real change happening? And you're mentioning food banks and engaging in uh, kind of local soup kitchens, et cetera. So I think that's a, that's a great example because this isn't about not protesting. It's about making sure that when we protest, we are already disinvested in the scapegoat mechanism. Because when you're disinvested in scapegoat, but I think that also changes how protests will look to some extent. Um, anybody else got questions? There's not very many there. You may have been putting your questions into the chat box, but uh, that's, I'll have a look just in case. Oh, no. Okay, I'll say a couple more things and you can type in a question if you want. Um, how will I finish this up? Yeah, I mean, again, just in terms of what Matt's saying is that, that it's, if we're getting pleasure from an enemy and like so much pleasure, like there's a, remember the phrase, love trumps hate? There was a banners that were held up at democratic conventions. I remember watching this and it was fascinating because I thought it was a very Freudian thing because, because love trumps hate. Obviously, it's saying that love is better than hate and it's using the word Trump. But, but there was a sense in which sometimes you thought, do we love Trump's hate? Like, do I get something out of it? You know, whether, you know, do I find it really funny and enjoyable and can't stop listening to the news and can't stop reading, you know, what the latest silly thing is and, and Twitter thing or whatever. And, and suddenly you go, ah, oh, I love Trump's hate. It's not love Trump's hate. It's I love Trump's hate, which means I get something out of it. And because I get something out of it, um, it's very easy to um, be libidinally invested in having people like Trump, like enemies that we can scapegoat and hate. And then what that does is it allows us to avoid, you know, confronting some of our own problems and issues and traumas and to create a fantasy of something perfect that if only we could get rid of them, it would be better. Now, the difference is you can, you know, uh, you can protest against um, you know, white supremacy in a way where you're not getting libidinal enjoyment. You're getting enjoyment because you're going like, I'm oh, maybe, you know, this is great. I'm fighting something that is, that is evil and bad, but it's, it's not that you need it. It's not, you've done the work. I mean, for me, the Christian community is a place where we have done the work to bring the depths of our being to the surface. We have confronted the lack and we have robbed it of its sting. And so that the activities that we do are not driven by this system. If you're doing my book study, um, you'll, this, the book study goes into depth in this. I mean, the book study is eight weeks where we just delve into what this means. And one of the arguments that Paul Hessert makes, because uh, we're studying his book, Christ and the End of Meaning, is that we have a basic structure of the actual and the ideal. And the actual is what is, and the ideal is what could be. And temporality is how do we get there. Power is how do we get from what is to what should be. 
And Hesert explores how the stronger the ideal, the more impossible it is. And the more frustrated we are, the more condemned we feel, the more guilty we feel. And the more condemned and guilty we feel, the more we'll turn it inwards against ourselves or we'll turn it outwards on somebody else. And he argues that Christianity is first and foremost a freedom from this entire system. So to take one example, he says grace, cheap grace, Bonhoeffer called it, you know, would be, oh, you know, you didn't reach the ideal. Don't worry about it. You know, you did something wrong, but it wasn't your intention. So it wasn't your intention. Or two, well, you did something wrong, but I'll give you a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance. Or grace can be, to be honest, it doesn't matter, kind of indifference. So that's our normal way of thinking about grace or forgiveness. But then Hessert says, but the theological meaning of the term is not, oh, you failed to hit the ideal or whatever, I'll give you another chance. But grace is, there is no ideal for you to hit. You are accepted completely for who you are right here, right now. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to strive. You don't have to grasp. You don't have to grasp anything. You don't even have to grasp not grasping. <laughs> you, you can let go of the hero who is the one who grasps and through self-will gets to a place and become a saint who lets go of all grasping. But then in that letting go, actually is able to really change. So this is a form of what, of what we're talking about here. Uh, Jordan and user brilliant a couple more uh, can this not work the other way too? investing in the pro as much as the anti um, you might just have to give me a little bit more I think I know what you're saying if I know what you're saying yes it can well like the scapegoat can be a good thing is, is that what you mean like homelessness let's get rid of homelessness or let's get rid of... so that's a good thing it's not let's get rid of the Jewish community or something like that which is negative, but it, it also works as a scapegoat. Like, you know, we say, oh, th so the homelessness is a problem to solve, when actually homelessness, if we listen to, if we, if we really work out why homelessness exists, we realize that it's because there's a problem in our political world, because that's how this works. You'll have heard me say this before, but instead of thinking of social action as we are good news to the poor, we go, no, the poor are good news to us, because they expose how corrupt our system is that it creates the poor in the first place so we go to the poor to find the divine to come to repentance to come to change that's why we do you know missionary work because we need to be saved and by why we go to the least of these they are good news to us so yeah if you're saying yeah this the sacred object can be something wonderful if only i had a million dollars then i'd be happy or you know, if only I could get rid of um, kind of, you know, this, you know, criminals or whatever, then everything would be great. But you might, but I don't know if that's what you mean. If it is, I totally agree. Uh, Jordan, how do we overcome the rush of anger when we encounter those things, such as white supremacy or injustice, and make sure we are not reacting and being made another battery that feeds the system? That's very good. I mean, like, and that's the thing, anger, I think, is, is, like it, there's, it's not about your level of anger. You know, in fact, if you're not angry, it's, there's, there's probably a problem or not listening. It's, it's whether we require the enemy. It's like, as, as I say, it's the hypochondriac needs the cancer. Whereas, you know, I'm watching Breaking Bad at the moment. So, you know, you, uh, uh, Walt has cancer. So he, he's not hypochondriac. He happens to have it. So in a weird sense, you can be more angry 
because you don't need it. It's a contingent thing that you want to get rid of and you want to find productive ways to get rid of it. So it's, 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 it's very difficult to work it out. But there are hints, like if you, me, say if I am always looking for that Facebook article that justifies what I believe, I'm always looking for that Huffington Post opinion piece that, that wham, gives me the data that, that supports why I hate a certain people. And simultaneously, I find myself avoiding stuff that disagrees with that or stuff that might just shed different light. Um, that's, that's a hint. Now, even then, it's not always because, you know, to be honest, there's things that are, you know, 90, 90% is terrible. It's like a relationship breakup. While most relationship breakups require two people, there are ones, most of them, one person's more guilty than the other. And some, like, one person is, like, you know, like, basically completely guilty and the other person not. So all of that's the case. But it's trying to work out whether, you know, my community, my people, whether we require the enemy, whether we get something out of it, and whether in a sense we would, you know, we're trying to avoid our own poverty and our own confrontation with the difficulties of life by creating it. And I think you have to look at the hints because it will never show itself directly, um, but it will show itself indirectly. It will show itself, as I say, that's one example, in that frenetic pursuit to just find things that that justify you know you know what your, your your position something like that oh yeah yeah you're saying yeah and user says uh yes obsessing over positive issues perfect yeah absolutely okay listen this i think this is controversial stuff um and you know i hope this will generate some conversation and i'm going to be talking more about this stuff in some of the events that I'm running um, in the next six months. Uh, but this does bring me to really what I've been arguing for the last 20 years, which is that Christianity is not a belief system. It's not a way of thinking. It doesn't add anything onto our lives, but it's a form of subtraction. And it's a form of being in the world in which we are freed from this death drive from this pursuit of the lost object that breaks the scapegoat mechanism. And René Girard, I haven't read a lot of René Girard, but I know enough to know that some of his thinking would resonate with this. And this, for me, is what parotheology is attempting to do in practice, uh, to create these communities where we are disinvested in this way through a variety of practices. And uh, I hope that you have experienced a little bit of that in your life. Um, there's a podcast I did with Rob Bell on love. And the third part touches on some of these things and how I think they can benefit our lives. Uh, just to give you one example, coming back to the guy who, whose analyst said, don't take the adultery off the table. You can actually hear that yourself. It was at a podcast I did called Hound Tall, which is potentially the worst and best podcast I've ever done. It was a total mess, <laughs> but um, there were moments that were funny and beautiful in the midst of it. But it was one of those comedians who had it, and he talks about it. But that, you know, for some of us, there's dissatisfaction, say, in our relationship, and we start to fantasize something that would be so much better. 
And the more impossible it is, the more it gets invested in meaning until it takes over everything and intentionally we blow our lives up and the lives of people we love. And in a sense, part of this is saying, okay, but what if we can actually, instead of having this prohibition, we go, hold on a second. All of that is just protecting me from looking at the inherent struggle of existence that I have to come to terms with. And by the way, when you do that, you may still break up with the person. You may end up going out with somebody else. It doesn't take that off the table, but it happens in a much healthier and less painful way. So sometimes you'll maybe stay with the person. Sometimes you'll leave the person. But what will be more unlikely is that you do something or the other person does something that is fundamentally destructive. If we don't face the struggles of our lives, those struggles will destroy us. And that's why I've said we all have ghosts. And if we don't, we don't make peace with our ghosts, we don't let them become holy ghosts, they become poltergeists and they destroy everything. So thank you for joining me for another Paro seminar. I hope you got something out of it. And um, I'll uh, check in with you next month. Take care.